Hi, I'm John from Stavanger, Norway. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Oh, yeah. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Dr. Paul Mullins, is the author of Glazed America, A History of the Donut. Paul is a professor at Indiana University, uh, Purdue University, Indianapolis. He's uh, the author of several other books, uh, mostly on the topic of his academic specialty, which is uh, anthropology. Uh, Paul, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Thanks for having me. So the question is, for a guy who's focused his academic career on uh, the intersections between race and culture, why did you refocus on uh, the intersection between um, sweet dough and hot boiling oil? Yeah, well, for me, actually, it was it's always about inequality in material culture and material consumption and how we disagree over the meaning of objects. And frankly, um, archaeological artifacts or donuts, you know, they, they were cut from the same fabric for me. I mean, we had these really profound culturally consequential disagreements over meaning that are waged with donuts. So I thought it was actually an easy segue. Let's talk a little bit uh, first about the history of donuts, and then we'll talk about the symbolism of donuts um, donuts are thought of as a quintessentially American foodstuff. Um, is that true? Where did they come from? Well, fried dough is pretty much timeless. There's some, somewhere deep in the reaches of the Neolithic where somebody had some boiling oil and they dropped some refined flour into it and they picked it out and ate it and realized it was delicious. And every cuisine in the world really has some sort of fried dough. It may be pastry, it may be savory or whatever. But that kind of circular fried dough that's glazed and sugary, that's very distinctively American and is a kind of a post-1800, 1850 phenomenon. Where did it come from? What were its predecessors? Well, that depends on who we ask, actually. But the the strongest case is generally made um, for the Dutch. You know, the Dutch brought some pastries to New Amsterdam and donuts begin to appear, you know, in the late 18th, early 19th century in about the same place. And the Dutch had some pastries that were not circular torses with a hole in the middle, but probably the preparation was very, very similar to what the way donuts are even made today. So the Dutch, I think, probably staked the strongest claim to what you and I call a donut. I thought it was interesting in your book. You mentioned uh, oh, one account of the history of the donut that you described as uh, ideolo ideologically biased. Um, that placed the birth of donuts with the pilgrims in Massachusetts. Yeah, that was done by the Mayflower chain um, in, in between the wars. And they they had a lengthy heritage that they constructed for the donut that basically was for marketing purposes. And during the between the wars, you know, one of the things they wanted to play on was kind of American nationalism and our sense of identity to come from the pilgrims. 
And the chain was named after the Mayflower as well, so it made a really nice marketing ploy, but there's not any real scholarly historical evidence to support that particular historical originations myth. Tell me about how donuts uh, came to the form that we now recognize them in. When did they become a, a breakfast food that you have with a, a mug of coffee? As a breakfast food, actually, donuts are really a 20th century phenomenon. In, in 19th century cookbooks and in uh, historical accounts in, in the 19th century, people ate donuts all during the day. They ate them for lunch. They ate them for dinner. But sometime probably around the 1920s, the donuts began to become a mass-produced commuter f- food, which as much as you and I recognize it today, and people tended to begin to eat them in the mornings on their way to work. So it they begin to be associated with kind of breakfast food ways probably about 80 years ago. Something interesting to me that you write about in the book is the relationship between uh, the rise of popularity in donuts in the United States and the Salvation Army's role in, in the war efforts. T- tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, what happened during World War One is um, there were women who worked for the Salvation Army on the front um, in France, and many of these women, they wanted to make food for the troops who were in action, and they tried a variety of foods. And the thing that they found was the um, easiest and most practical to, to produce were actually donuts. And one of the things they realized really quickly is that when they made donuts on the front, the scent would literally go up and down the trench. So they were inundated with um, soldiers who wanted to eat donuts. And these gals realized very quickly that one of the reasons that donuts were so appealing to these soldiers is they reminded them of home and mother and family. And even today, there are donut shops in Afghanistan and Iraq, and the Salvation Army continues to serve donuts to soldiers even today. Now, the donut uh, is something that we think of today as something that you would go to a donut store to buy and not something that you would prepare at home for the most part. Um, when did the donut uh, come to have that relationship with people? When did it get mass marketed to the point where it was uh, dramatically easier and, and less expensive to to make it in the back of a donut shop than it was to make it in your kitchen? Yeah, that shift really begins in the in the 1920s when donut machines are introduced for the first time, and they become they they become sold to tons and tons of bakeries. And the, you know, the dilemma of making, I mean, you can make donuts at home and there are people that continue to do it, but any deep frying is just a incredible drag at home. It's a big mess. It's a, it's just unpleasant um, cooking. And on the other hand, you can go to a donut shop and for basically 75 cents or a buck, you know, you can walk out with a donut. So they become mass produced really in the 20s. And that really remains how the vast, vast majority of donuts are consumed today. I think donuts have a sort of cultural resonance that for many people is anchored to the mid-century Cold War uh, baby boomer era. Um, how did that how did that resonance uh, come about? Yeah, well, I think actually a lot of that is because that's when the um, – the chains emerge, you know, chains that we still recognize today. Krispy Kreme, you know, traces their roots to about that period. Dunkin' is just a few moments behind. Lots of the chains begin to emerge at about that moment. And chains like Krispy Kreme really play on that retro aesthetics when you go to a donut shop, and they play on their history. You know, that's one of the ways they try to get us to keep coming back over generations is your grandfather went here, your dad went here, you went here, your children will go here. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Paul Mullins, author of Glazed America, A History of the Donut.
We'll have more with Paul in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Maximum Fun is coming to San Francisco in January. You can catch The Sound of Young America live as part of SF Sketchfest at Cobb's Comedy Club on January 23rd, with special guests including the Casper Hauser Comedy Group and Sean Cullen. As if that wasn't enough, you can catch the Monsters of Podcasting, that's Jordan Jesse Go, and you look nice today, that very same weekend at the Eureka Theater. They're just two of the dozens of amazing shows at this year's SF Sketchfest including the Upright Citizens Brigade, The State, and our podcasting pals Jimmy Pardo and Matt Belknap with Never Not Funny Live. Get your tickets now at sfsketchfest.com. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dr. Paul Mullins, is an anthropologist who's turned his scientist's eye to the history of the donut. His new book is Glazed America. What are the symbolisms uh, that donuts carry with them? Yeah, well, I think they're incredibly rich, and a lot of it depends on who we ask. You know, for some people, donuts are the quintessential food of desire. They're the treat that we give ourselves. Um, And for other people, they're the food of temptation that actually is essentially the most evil food, you know, that represents all of our battles against bodily – that we're not winning over bodily discipline. So there's a really wide range of responses, and my sense anthropologically has always been that when we hear people talk about donuts, what they're really talking about is themselves or their body, the way they view the nation, the way they view view mass foodways. How did those symbolisms develop over the course of the, the 20th century? The relationship of the donut and kind of health, which is one of the discussions we often have in contemporary society, is a kind of a discussion around the donut that emerges really systematically in the 1950s and 60s during kind of dieting trends. But there are hints of it. In the late 19th century, every once in a while, somebody will discuss donuts and talk about how they fill them, they fill people up on, um, in an unpleasant sort of way. You see hints of that sometimes in the 20s and 30s, but really, it doesn't happen until very recently, you know, in the late 50s or in early 1960s. What are the cultural associations with those health questions? How do different cultural groups view them? It's a little bit – I don't know if it's necessarily cultural as much as – there tend to be kind of regional and class-distinctive senses of the donut. Certainly, um, many of us in the South have embraced the donut in sweet, carbohydrate-rich foods. Um, folks that are part of church communities, regardless of region, often will eat donuts you know, as part of the after-service you know, after uh, after cuisine on a weekly basis – um, for other folks, it's a little more of a kind of a, a consciously downwardly mobile, if you will, a working class food, you know, so that um, that upper class folks eat. So it, it really kind of depends on who we ask, where we're at, and it's contextually, I think, very specific. What about the associations we have with who eats donuts? Have they have they always been perceived as a sort of salt of the earth type of food? I think it really just depends on who we ask at any given time. I, I think a lot of the kind of stereotypes that you and I have about donuts, that they're associated with 
lazy police officers or that they're associated with overweight folks or Southerners or the working class or whatever the case is. A lot of that actually is um, kind of complex caricatures that have been constructed in popular culture, you know, and and that's where we've learned most of that stuff. One of the interesting stories that you write about in the book is the story of uh, Cambodian immigrants uh, in the donut industry in the United States. Um, who's making the donuts? Well, in in that case, um, a lot of Cambodians came over mostly to Southern California. And as family units, they bought into donut chains, not necessarily because they had a culinary heritage that um, – where they had eaten donuts. It simply was an inexpensive chain to buy into. It turns out that buying a donut, buying, setting up a donut shop is by food service standards, not really all that expensive. So lots and lots of these folks set up these donut shops and then they work them as family, essentially as family businesses. And some of them will go into chains. Some of them get out of the business as soon as they can. So there's a really wide variety. It's a you know, my sense is that it's just one way a particular group of pe- folks ended up living the American dream, and they just happened to wrap that dream around donut shops. People have very specific um, regional associations with donuts, certainly uh, Krispy Kreme donuts in the southeast, um, Dunkin' Donuts in, in the northeast, but some people also feel very strongly uh, about independent donuts. Um what feeling did you get about the way that people, the relationships that people have with the places that they get their donuts? Well, I think folks feel really strongly about their little local bakery. And there certainly are tons and tons of people out there that favor the independent baker. The difference, I think, with donut shops and, and the expansion of food cha- other sorts of food chains is that if a Dunkin' or a Krispy Kreme arrives in town, it doesn't usually drive the local mom and pop bakery out of business. And in fact, Typically, what will happen is that it simply reminds people that they love donuts and they just haven't thought about them lately, and they go back to those little independent shops. So it's a very different effect than having a huge box superstore arrive in town and drive out all the little mom-and-pop stores. As I was thinking about the uh, cultural resonances of donuts getting ready for this interview, I found myself inexorably drawn to YouTube to watch uh, clips from Wayne's World. And the other, the other big uh, uh, cultural resonance of the donut in in 21st century America, I think, is is Homer Simpson. Um, he comes up a, a number of times in your book. Um, how do you think that sort of dominant reflection of donuts in popular culture? Uh, what what do you think that means about about what we think about donuts? Yeah, my take on it is is what um, Homer does is what all of us want to do. He acts on every bodily desire. He doesn't want to work out. He wants to sit and watch TV, um, and he wants to eat donuts, and he does all that stuff. And I think that's one of the things that makes it makes him so appealing. And actually, and donuts actually make a really nice piece of food for for that show to use it as an example of the kinds of desires that many of us. Um, want to act on, but are simply discipline ourselves against. Were there ideas about donuts uh, that you had that that changed in in the research that you did for this book? Um, well, I think um, I, I probably had a little bit of uh, the caricature that donuts were simply working class food. And I think the thing you see very quickly after you go to a donut shop is it cuts across every ethnic group. It cuts across class boundaries, suburban, urban, rural, inner city. Um, 
donuts have incredibly broad appeal. I mean, it's as foods go, there are very few foods that can make can stake the, a similar claim. Well, Paul, I, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Thanks. Dr. Paul Mullen's book is called Glazed America, A History of the Donut. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. My personal email address is jesse at maximumfun.org. Drop me a line sometime. And yeah, I think that's about it. I'm sick. (laughs) (coughs) Ah, I knock them out for you guys, though. Okay. (laughs) We'll see you later this week on The Sound of Young America.